Well, what a chapter, hey? Maybe some people saw what the passage was and thought, I'll stay home for this. It is a confronting passage, uh, maybe shocking to you, and uh, maybe your eyes glazed over a bit when it started talking about ten kings and seven kings and not have power but not yet and all those complex uh, words there. I should say at the outset, uh, we won't look into it this morning, but we've often been going back to Daniel chapter 7, so the prophecies that Daniel saw uh, during the exile, uh, which were then sealed up, uh, are the, uh, is what is being opened up now in the book of Revelation. And uh, like I said, we won't look at it this morning, but if you uh, look at Daniel chapter 7, uh, you will see the same kind of imagery of a beast uh, that has ten horns, and those horns speak of of kings. Uh, this is the the sixth vision now in the book of Revelation, and this vision will contain seven songs of woe over fallen Babylon. We'll see that next week in uh, the next chapter. But as with most of the visions we've been seeing, the scene is set first before we see. Uh, the group of of seven aspects. And that's what's happening here in this chapter. It's a confronting and a shocking image. Uh, But we'll see that the reason it's shocking to us may not necessarily be why it was so shocking to its original readers. It's a passage that's been hotly debated over the centuries People have tried to work out exactly what the symbolism is, who are the seven kings, who are the ten kings, who's the eighth king. Uh, But the focus is on these two figures, uh, a woman and a scarlet beast. We're told that the woman with the name Babylon is the great city that has dominion or kingship over the kings of the earth. Now we know that isn't literal Babylon. Since the Babylon kingdom, Babylonian kingdom fell centuries earlier and the name of mystery means that it carries a meaning that's to be uncovered. It's something about the nature, not the literal geography or location of the city. But we're we're left to work out what city it actually is. We're told that the Beast's seven heads are both mountains and kings and his ten horns are kings. But again, we're not given specific names. We're not told who these kings are. Although that symbolism clearly communicates a kingdom or an empire. We'll get to what that all means in a moment. But before we do, I need us to notice something very important in the way that John himself reacts to this vision. He says, When I saw her, I marvelled greatly. Now that word technically means to gaze at or even admire. And there could be a sense of that there. It's often used in that positive sense. But it's also used occasionally in a negative sense. As in when Paul wrote to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and a turn into a different gospel. That word astonished there is the same word. Whether positive or negative, that word conveys a sense of amazement at seeing something completely unexpected, something beyond belief, utterly astonishing. And not only did John marvel, but he says, I marvelled greatly. So why was he so shocked, astonished? Well, fresh in his mind would have been the earlier vision that we saw in chapters 12 to 14, the vision of those seven symbolic figures. And the first of those figures, remember, was this woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet, crying out in birth pains. And we saw that this woman represented Israel and Israel's capital, Jerusalem. And the child that she gave birth to was Jesus, the Messiah. It had been promised throughout Israel's history. Now the last we saw of this woman was when she fled into the wilderness, fleeing from the red dragon to be nourished for 1,260 days, uh, which I said could indicate uh, the time of Jesus' public ministry, which was about three and a half years. Uh, But the dragon then turned his attention to her other children, who were those who keep the commandments of God and holds to the testimony of Jesus. So that image there is in the back of his mind. He's just seen it. Now he's taken out to the wilderness where he might expect to see this woman safe and healthy and nourished. But instead he's astonished. He's told, come I will show you the the judgement of the great prostitute. And instead of seeing a woman clothed in the sun, he sees a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Instead of standing on the moon, she's sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. Instead of a crown of twelve stars on her head, She has written on her head, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. Instead of being nourished by God, she's drunk from drinking from a cup full of abomination and impurities. And instead of having children who testify to Jesus, she's drunk with the blood of the saints of those who believe and testify to Jesus. So he's astonished. It's not what he expected. But we haven't even got to the most astonishing part yet. What's so shocking about this vision is that it's not a different woman. It's the same woman that he saw in chapter 12. Verse 18 tells us, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. What is the great city? Well, back in 
chapter 11, we're told about these two witnesses who were martyred and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Note here that this city, this great city, is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, two places out of which God's people were rescued, Lot out of Sodom, the nation of Israel out of Egypt, two places that then came under God's judgment. The third place that fits this description in the Old Testament is Babylon. So it fits to call Jerusalem Babylon. Jerusalem has become like Babylon. When, when Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD, the Christians had been pre-warned by Jesus' words. Uh, we, you see that in Matthew 24. They knew it was coming and so they fled in advance, a bit like Lot fleeing Sodom or Israel fleeing Egypt. So what I'm saying is this great city that's mentioned in Revelation refers to the city of Jerusalem. That's why it was so shocking. The capital city of God's people, the Jewish people, is now described as a prostitute awaiting her destruction. This imagery of a glorious queen clothed in the sun, who then becomes a gaudy prostitute, comes out of Ezekiel chapter 16. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became Mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. 
you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendour that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What a beautiful picture of how the Lord chose and formed Israel. Finding a newborn infant discarded in a field in the ancient world wasn't uncommon. Children would be routinely discarded if they were unwanted, if they were disabled or if they were just the wrong gender. The Babylonians actually had a law that stated that if if you found the discarded infant in a field, you had the legal right to adopt them as your own son or daughter or to raise them as your slave. So it was, it was common enough for it to be in the law. Well, who should pass by this abandoned baby girl but the Lord himself? Seeing her in a desperate state, he says, one word that makes a difference between life and death, live. This simple declaration secured the girl's future. Her fate would not be to die in the open field or torn apart by wild dogs and never remembered again. The Lord has a plan for her, a plan that would come to fruition once she reaches adulthood. He is taking upon himself a legal obligation to raise, protect, care for this child as his own. Then in verse 8 he passes by her again and this time he acts on his promises. The girl has grown into adulthood, she's ready for marriage. But rather than find a different husband for her, the Lord enters into a marriage covenant with her himself. And in this action he turns her shame into dignity. He covers her nakedness with his own garment. He washes away the blood. Whereas his birth, her birth mother had never wrapped her in swaddling cloths, he now wraps her in fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. The clothes not of a commoner or a slave, but a noblewoman, one who's destined to be a queen. Here's the magnificent sun-clothed woman of Revelation 12, Jerusalem, as she was originally called and chosen. But then the story in Ezekiel 16 takes a downward turn. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourselves colourful shrines that on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver which I had given to you and made for yourselves images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my all and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters 
whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Despite the lavish, self-sacrificial love and grace that the Lord, her husband, had given her, the Queen turned from her faithful husband and engaged not just in sexual immorality but in prostitution. Despite knowing the loving kindness of her husband, this beautiful Queen abused her position and her privilege. She saw the gifts that she had received not as a reason for thankfulness but to be exploited for her own ends. She forgot or chose to not remember the past from which she'd been saved. And so in her deception she ended up in a worse place than where she'd started. See in verses 20 to 21, she even slaughters her own children, just like the woman of Revelation 17 who's drunk with the blood of the saints. Now I'll stop reading at verse 22 because the language continues and it becomes even stronger, even more explicit as it describes this Queen's unfaithfulness. The Lord has to jolt his people by using languages and images that shock and offend because he wants them to be shocked and offended at themselves and their sin and their idolatry. But I will look at verses 37 to 41 because it also relates specifically to our passage. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who loved, all those you loved, and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords." The Lord will cause this adulterous queen's lovers to turn on her. He'll use them to bring judgment. Now remember, Ezekiel was prophesying at the time of the exile. Between the time when Babylon had conquered Judah, but they hadn't yet destroyed Jerusalem. Remember last week we saw Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God leaving the temple and then leaving the city which had been defiled by all of the idols that had been brought into the temple. His covering of protection was removed to make way for King Nebuchadnezzar to come in and ransack everything and that's what he did, destroyed it all and he took the treasures of the temple off to Babylon. So Jerusalem had committed adultery with Babylon 
But now under God's sovereignty, Babylon betrays and destroys her. Well, John, as he's writing Revelation, stands in a similar vantage point to Ezekiel. The Father's plan for Israel and Jerusalem has come to fruition. The Messiah has been born, has lived among his people as Emmanuel, God with us. Through his death and resurrection he's been made Lord and King. But Jerusalem didn't welcome their king. She didn't welcome her true husband. As Jesus came to Jerusalem for his final visit just before being crucified, he drew near and saw the city. He wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So these prophetic words of Ezekiel and of Jesus are echoed in our passage, verses 16 to 17, in which the beast and this woman have this strange, even lewd kind of relationship an adulterous marriage. She thinks she's in control because she's riding the beast, but in fact the beast can take her anywhere that he pleases. She thinks she's safe in this relationship, but the beast will turn on her and destroy her. So John and we, through his eyes, look back to the glorious history of Jerusalem that produced the Messiah, but also on this tragedy of a Jerusalem that has become just like, if not worse, than the city at the time of Ezekiel. Now, there weren't idols and images in the temple in Jesus' day or in New Testament times, but Jerusalem had become an idolatrous nation because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They were no longer worshipping the God who had sent Jesus. Jews and Christians don't worship the same God. The true God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the God of Judaism that's rejected Jesus Christ is just an empty shell. It's a God that's a false god, an idol. So that's the woman. I haven't said yet what the scarlet beast represents, but maybe you've already made the connection. Uh, It stands for Rome, the Roman Empire. The first century equivalents of the Babylonians. See how the angel interprets the symbolism for John. He says a series of things, all of which combined, point to the beast's identity as the Roman Empire. Now there are specific details here that probably the first readers of 
Revelation, the original readers understood more of the specifics and we can't be dogmatic on some of these specifics because we, we were not there, but we see it all points, the symbolism all points in the same direction. So the beast who was and is not and is about to rise, that should make us think of the false claim of the beast back in chapter 13 who had a mortal wound that had been healed, mimicking Jesus' death and resurrection. His ten heads and seven horns and his being full of blasphemous names is also what was said of that first beast in chapter 13. It is also scarlet. That should make us think of the red dragon who actually produced that first beast. So this is in a way a composite uh, image of the dragon and the beast together. It's a human kingdom empowered by Satan, the red dragon, and for the original readers of Revelation, they understood that that was all embodied in the person of the Roman Emperor, Nero. Then we're told that the seven heads are seven mountains. Rome was known as the city built on seven hills. So that allusion is clear there. We're told that the seven heads are also seven kings. So this is where it gets a little bit uh, more complicated and we can't be really dogmatic, I think, on this. But from Julius Caesar, there were five emperors before Nero, the sixth king who is. Nero was followed by the emperor Galba, who only remained for six months. So he remained for only a little while. So it could be the seven kings are referring to these succession of emperors up to the time of Nero. Then we're told that the beast is also an eighth king that belongs to the seven. And this is a little bit more complicated. It's most likely referring to the the fact that the empire was thrown into disarray for a while when Nero committed suicide. Lots of people were grasping for power. There were three short-lived rebel emperors who all ruled within the space of uh, one year. But then the ascent of Vespasian, who reigned for ten years, the spirit of the emperors was restored or revived. Vespasian was the emperor who sent his armies to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. Then we're told that the ten horns symbolise ten kings. Now that could be speaking of the ten emperors from Julius Caesar up to Vespasian, like a summary of the imperial might of Rome. Or it could be a reference to the the ten imperial provinces that surrounded Judea in the eastern part of the empire, which largely corresponded to ancient kingdoms 
So they were kind of like the equivalent of the nations that surrounded Old Testament Israel and would often ally with their enemies to attack them. It could also be that the numbers 10 and the number 7 speak of completeness too, so there could be that sense there. But as I said, we don't need to get caught up in the specifics. We don't need to try and work out exactly the identity of these figures. We can see that it clearly points us to this first century equivalent of Babylon, which was the Roman Empire. So to sum up this vision, what does it stand for? Jerusalem, the Jews, once a noble queen who under the father's sovereign hand had given birth to the Messiah, Jesus, she has committed adultery of the worst kind. She's rejected her Messiah. She's put his followers to death. She's shown herself to be an idolater at heart. Not only that, but She's entered into this unholy marriage with Rome, her beastly oppressor, working together with Rome to persecute and slaughter those who loved Jesus. But things are about to change because her de facto husband, he doesn't care for her and he's going to destroy her and in a way that will be more final than ever. This destruction on the outside will look like the triumph of Rome over a little province, but will actually be an expression of the lordship of Jesus, who from this point on, from 70 AD on, his people would be scattered across the empire and beyond, taking the gospel that Jesus is Lord to every corner of the empire and to every tribe and tongue and nation. See how this is expressed in verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So as always we see where God's people are in the midst of all of this chaos and judgment. We are with him in this great enterprise of asserting his lordship over all the nations. And in contrast to the prostitute, we describe as chosen, called and faithful. Israel was chosen and called, but proved unfaithful. Those who are redeemed by the Lamb, however have hearts that, despite persecution, keep trusting in him, remain faithful. Now, there's two things I want to say in response to a question that you may be asking, what's this all got to do with us today? Firstly, this image reinforces the end of the old and the inauguration of the new in Jesus. Jesus made obsolete the old system of national Old Testament Israel, including the city as the home of the Davidic king and including the temple as the centre of worship. And he confirmed that when he sent the Romans to bring an end to it all. 
But remember, for the most part, when the New Testament was being written, the city was still there, the temple still stood in Jerusalem. The Jews were still offering sacrifices there. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were feeling the pressure from their families and communities to go back to the temple. But they were told, if you do that, if you go back and start offering sacrifices again, that would be rejecting the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. National temple-based Israel was just a shadow of the reality that had come in Jesus. The kingdom of God is now centred in and expressed by the church. The true worship of the Father is in spirit and in truth and is done now by the church, not by the priests in the temple. The nation of Israel... This is controversial, but the nation of Israel, whatever form it takes today, is just another nation among the nations. A people who, just like other nations, need to hear and believe the gospel. So focusing on modern affairs of Israel today is actually a distraction from the true gospel. What's taking place there in the Middle East isn't the fulfilment of biblical prophecy because all prophecies are fulfilled and centred in Jesus and in his gospel being proclaimed in all the earth. We need to know all that because we need to be enabled to live today in the freedom of the Spirit, one for us in Jesus and not be tempted to slip back into Legalism or ways of living or worshipping that are more based on the old covenant. We can't read the Old Testament and just apply it directly to us as if we were Old Testament Jews. We must always read it through the lens of Jesus and his fulfilment of it all. We need to see which parts of it have been made obsolete by his fulfilment of the law, like the temple and so on. Which parts of it still apply and are reapplied in the framework of the church. And if you want a good sense of how to do that, come along Friday night as we go through the book of Deuteronomy and read God's law and see how it's fulfilled in Jesus. The second thing is that this image of the prostitute stands as a solemn warning. Despite all that the Lord had done for Israel, their hearts were hard and they continually turned away, confirming the deceitfulness of the human heart. Well, until the day that the bride of Christ is presented to him in all purity and holiness, the temptation will still be there for the church to turn aside from pure devotion to Christ and to commit adultery with the idols of our age. For the first century Jews, their adultery was being committed with Rome. Through history, that scarlet beast has and will take many other different forms. Church history is testimony to that fact, as the church has repeatedly backslidden 
and needed reformation and revival. So we must stay alert. We must be on our guard against anyone or anything that might come to lead us astray. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our true bridegroom, whose promise to make us ready for that day, which, as we'll see very soon, is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. There is a third part to that story in Ezekiel 16. And there is one more vision of a woman to come in Revelation. And in a sense, she's the third iteration of this woman. The first was Jerusalem, as she was chosen and called. The second, as we've seen this morning, is unfaithful Jerusalem, as she was defiled by adultery. But the third will be the new Jerusalem, the church, dressed as a bride, called, redeemed and faithful. And we'll see her and her bridegroom in chapters 19 to 22. We have one more judgement passage to work through. Uh, the seven songs of woe over fallen Babylon. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. We'll hang in there. We'll push through one more passage of judgement and then it will be the glory of the new Jerusalem. Let's pray.